Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Will Duffin. Today I'm speaking to fellow extreme medic, Dr. Fionn Davis, who's a clinical fellow in ED in North Wales and also works with the Air Ambulance in Mountain Rescue and has supported many overseas trips, including ultramarathons in the Azores. She's been a medical officer for tall ships in the Atlantic and worked with floating doctors out in Panama. And I invited Fionn to reflect on both her best case and worst moment in her extreme medicine career so far. The conversation takes us to many places from managing trauma in the Welsh mountains to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. I really enjoyed Fionn's candid reflections on the triumphs and challenges of each case. And we talk about team dynamics in mountain rescue, methods for keeping a casualty warm, effective analgesia in trauma, as well as the tension between supporting inexperienced participants to enter wild and dangerous environments versus the safety and ethical implications, why being a medic on Kili is one of the toughest gigs going, what to do when you're struggling yourself at altitude, when everyone in the group is needing treatment and you're faced with the dilemma of do I carry on or do I need to get off this mountain? And there's loads more in there as well. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Fionn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And we're going to be hearing a lot more from you because you're actually our newest podcast host. Welcome. Yes, I'm super excited to be making my first venture into podcasts. And it's really, it's really cool to be being interviewed on the other side of it to start with. Well, it's a great way to get your eye in, isn't it? I, I know you've got some great guests lined up, so I'm looking forward to listening to those episodes. And uh, we're going to talk about your best case and your worst moment in your career in extreme medicine so far. But you've actually already had enough drama for the day by the sounds of it, because I, you had a bit of drama with your car on the drive this morning. Tell me what happened. Yeah, so I'm in North Wales and we've got about two to three inches of snow. Um, and I was putting up onto the driveway, which is on a bit of a slope. Um, parked up, got out of the car and uh, came in to get set up for the podcast. And then uh, my mother-in-law ran in saying, Fionn, your car slid off the driveway into the road. <laughs> so um, had hastily uh, had to go and rectify the situation, put the car back in a more sensible parking position, uh, not on a slope. <laughs> God, sounds like it's all been happening over there. Uh, so your, your, your best case, and this is a great case, there's so much rich learning we can take from this. Um, it, it's brilliant. Uh, so this is a, a search and rescue case. Um, take, talk us through what happened and then we can reflect on, on some of the learning that came from that. So over to you, Fionn. So this uh, case was a mountain rescue case. I'm based in Northeast uh, Wales search and rescue team. We were just finishing up one of our training sessions. Um, we were doing online because it was during COVID times when we got the beginnings of a call out start to get going, uh, which was great timing because I was about to have another glass of wine. So <laughs> so that was good. We, we heard that there was a, a mountain biker who had had a, a fall on a local mountain biking spot um with a mangled leg um we didn't really get much more detail than that but one of the team members knew one of his friends and they sent through a picture of a sort of uh, makeshift splint with some bits of wood strapped to a leg with a foot obviously pointing in the wrong direction um so we figured that we better get going and started out on the call 
Um, so we got there at about sort of half past nine at night. It was already dark, uh, fairly cold. It was, it was winter time. And he wasn't too far up the trail, luckily. So about sort of 200 meters off the main track, we came across the patient. He had about three friends with him who had done their very best to fashion uh, a splint with bits of wood and clothing and sort of strapped them to his leg. They put some coats underneath him very sensibly. And the story was that he'd come off a cliff, well, a small cliff that was about sort of maybe 15 foot high. Um, he'd landed awkwardly and his feet were clipped into the mountain bike. So they were in a fixed position. Uh, so his foot had gone one way and his leg had gone the other way, resulting in a really nasty uh, fracture dislocation of his ankle, uh, with his ankle pointing about 90 degrees uh, in the wrong direction. So by this point, he'd been on the floor for about six hours or so. He was getting a bit cold. Uh, he was in a lot of pain. He'd called for an ambulance, but um, as I'm sure we're all aware at the moment, the wait for ambulances is significant um, and they had other priority patients to get to so they've been there have been long delays um, and they had delayed activating the man rescue team uh, be, because they thought that they were going to get an ambulance and they wouldn't need us but we had uh, we arrived we started coming in drips and jabs as is the way with the mountain rescue to call out we had uh, the Land Rover was coming with all our kit but originally you just get a few team members who assess the situation and uh, sort of create a shopping list of what kit uh, we will need and want we started, his, his mates had already done a pretty good job of insulating him and keeping him warm. They had lots of jackets piled on top of him and stuff. We cut his trousers off and we cut his boot off as well, uh, which he wasn't happy about because they were very expensive, apparently. <laughs> we um, had a good look at the injury. So his foot was obviously dislocated and he said he couldn't feel it when we were touching uh, over the sort of top door, some of his foot. He had a delayed cap refill time of around about five seconds or so. It felt pretty cold to touch, but to be honest, he, he felt pretty cold to touch all over uh, because of the, the temperature outside and how long he'd been on the floor. He had quite a lot of swelling, some, the beginning of some bruising and um, some critical skin over his uh, malleolus as well, where the bone was sort of pushing up against the skin, making it turn white. Um, the rest of the team started arriving. We did a quick primary survey, established that there wasn't any other serious injuries that we were concerned about, um, as we were aware that this ankle was quite distracting. And as we arrived, we started getting him ready uh, to pull this ankle. We knew that we were going to pull it because there was neurovascular compromise. Um, so we gave him some morphine, we gave him some Entinox, uh, we got the sort of vacuum splint ready and a blizzard blanket started get, keeping him warm and we started assembling a stretcher uh, to get with a wheel in order to get him off the mountain biking track. We um, had a, a few more team members arriving at this point um, so there's probably about maybe four to five of us around the actual casualty and then there's another probably 10 to 15 in the background who were sort of running to the Land Rover getting bits of kit um putting the stretcher together organizing uh his evacuation from from where he was in the mountain biking track so there was quite a lot going on in the background um i was lucky that we had another doctor arrive as well um so one of our one of our other team doctors he's a, a cardiologist in the day uh mountain rescue doctor by night um 
and we had made a joint decision at this point that we needed to pull the ankle discussed this with the patient explained what we were going to do and then because uh we, we were sort of discussing who was going to get to pull this ankle um and just by nature of i'm an a and e doctor um i see ankles fairly regularly and pull them again fairly regularly and he's a cardiologist and he doesn't really get much opportunity to pull ankles or if he has something has gone seriously wrong in his day job <laughs> so um he was keen to to do the procedure and he'd done a few before with mountain rescue but not for a while explained it all to the patient explained it to the team briefed them on what we were going to do and uh got all our kit ready and laid out so that we could sort of swiftly pull his ankle with somebody doing counter traction and then uh, get him into a vacuum splint as soon as possible. And then we had the stretcher ready so that we could then package him up, uh, get him in, get him and get him to hospital, which is ultimately what he needed. So um, the actual pulling of the ankle was, was kind of unremarkable, uh, went really well. So Patrick, the cardiologist was pulling on the ankle at, we had uh, one of our other team members doing counter traction and then myself just kind of overseeing uh, the situation and making sure he was adequately analgesed. He had enough entonox. He was puffing away really well on it. Um, assured the casualty that it was OK to swear this was an appropriate situation <laughs> in which swearing was OK. Um, and then after a really good hard pull, um, saw the ankle, felt it, saw it clunk back into place, rotated it back round so the foot was in a more anatomical position. And then we'd already marked out where his dorsalis pedis pulse was. So I uh, rechecked his pulse afterwards, uh, rechecked his cat refill time and his um, neurovascular status, and it was all improving um, after we'd pulled it. So um, we then sort of had an added complication of trying to get into hospital because we knew we weren't getting an ambulance and Mountain Rescue can't technically transport patients to hospital. Um, but that's kind of a kind of a different story. We did eventually take him in the back of the Land Rover after a lot of um, yes. when we got him to hospital, yeah, sorry. he had a try. Oh, sorry. He had a trimalleolar fracture uh, and something that we had missed was a fibula fracture a little bit higher up the leg which uh, we just had been so distracted by this ankle uh, and how it was so out of place and deformed um, that we had not really assessed the rest of his leg in detail and so when they did the x-rays later on it did turn out he had a fibula fracture higher up as well. Yeah it's a really great case Fionn and uh, you know it's something we teach a lot on our courses is uh, fracture reduction in the field and uh, yeah, managing trauma like this. And I, I, there's so many positives uh, about how you work together as a team. And one interesting aspect of this is how, you know, normally with flash teams, you all arrive on the scene at the same time. But you, know, you, were, you said you're arriving in dribs and drabs. That must have made it quite tricky when some people had started and others suddenly kind of filter in and to, to keep the, 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 that mental model shared around the team. Was that a kind of a, a challenge when new members arrived and, and, and needed to kind of understand where you're up to and what the current uh current plan of action was yeah and i'm sure this resonates with a lot of people in hospital as well when you get sort of cardiac arrests and you get the team arriving in drips and drabs um it's really challenging to keep everybody informed but still um not find yourself giving about 10 handovers to 10 different people um so the way we run it a lot of the time in Mountain Rescue is that we've got a sort of overall incident commander um, who is not directly involved with the casualty, but is kind of making sure that 
the people looking after the casualty, the CAS care, as we call them, have got all the equipment they need um, and that they're thinking about the next steps of what needs to happen. So we need to put the stretcher together. We need to get the Land Rover up the track. Um, we need to be calling his family. We need to be thinking about which hospital we're going to, et cetera. So they're kind of big picture coordinators. Um, so there's a lot of communication that goes on between that, that instant commander and the people looking after the casualty and the rest of the team. So he kind of sends runners um, to and from the casualty site uh, and the sort of equipment dump that we have where we put all our kit together. I think keeping the two things separate is a really uh, useful thing uh, that possibly we could adopt a little bit more in healthcare as well, that the equipment layout uh, getting the stretcher together, getting the vacuum mattress, getting the blizzard blanket um, is all separate to actually where the casualty is. And if we looking after the casualty say, oh, we need um, we need a vacuum splint. Uh, we've got a runner who will go over to the kit dump, grab it for us, bring it back. Um, in terms of keeping everybody in, on the same page, we try to have a sort of core casualty carers who are looking after the the patient um and then we tend to be static um so we won't be moving from the casualty side so any developments that go along the way or decision making processes or share, sharing our mental model as we go um we tend to all be on the same page sometimes that yeah. you get people arriving in drips and drabs um after that point in which case you need to just give them a quick sort of one minute handover and what you need them to do next. Um, so yeah, job allocation and role allocation uh, is really important. And along with that goes the sort of being a good team member and good followership. So not sort of arriving into the situation, trying to take over without knowing all of the information, but actually saying, right, yeah, hi, I'm here, what can I do? Yeah, I think that's a really key point is I, uh, when I've been in similar situations, it's always surprised me just how much complexity there is and how many different tasks need to be completed and to have to release your bandwidth to be more patient focused, uh, knowing that you have those big picture coordinators backing you up, I think is is really, really key in, in a high functioning team. Um, and it sounds to me, I mean, I like really like the fact that, you know, as a team, you're able to enable this, the cardiologist in the group to do the actual procedure, you know, because the kind of learning value to him was so much greater that it really speaks to you having a really um, uh, kind of warm and supportive culture within that team that you're able to do that. And you weren't all just jostling to to get in and do the, the, the exciting bit. Yeah, um, and it's actually quite unusual for us to have two doctors on a call um usually there would there would be no doctors um and so it's not uncommon for us uh when either myself or patrick the other doctor um are out on a on a mountain rescue call out we usually are not hands-on we are usually kind of supervising overseeing because we would far rather um support our well-trained and highly trained cas carers um to to get that experience and to be in the position but knowing that they've got a doctor on their shoulder so if they're not sure they can always ask us something um far rather do that uh and allow the sort of electricians plumbers secretaries um in the team who are our usual cas carers and probably go to far more of the call outs than do the docs do and the actual healthcare professionals i'd far rather invest my time and effort in training them and supporting them uh 
than 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 rushing in and, and taking over and being hands-on and clinical um so yeah it's not unusual for us as as the doctors to be taking a step back and to be sort of right yeah you're doing a really good job mate what else can i do to help you out yeah, yeah, really, really interesting to hear that. You know, say that that tension between being good, good leader and knowing when to step in, but also good being a good follower and knowing when to have that light touch approach and 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 allow others to really just kind of do their job and just just be there in the background supporting them rather than just trying to be you know like a helicopter just hovering over them and just trying to micromanage everything. I I really like your your kind of your style uh, of your approach there. Um, one interesting aspect of this was the you know the delayed um uh de delayed response to the casualty I, I mean this was 9 30 in, in the evening that you actually were had the call out and they, i gather the actual not only people are out mountain biking at 9 30 in the evening um i think it happened a lot earlier in the day but for whatever reason things got delayed and the maybe the conventional ambulance wasn't available um so the casualty had actually been out on the hill for quite a prolonged period and must be must have been quite cold by the time you got to them Keeping casualties um, warm, even in a you know, regular land ambulance, is hard enough. But what 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 kind of techniques and, and and equipment did you use out on the on the hill there to to keep that casualty warm from the point that you arrived right up until you bundled in the back of Land Rover and actually finally got them to definitive care? So, as I kind of mentioned, his friends had already done a fairly good job of um, insulating him. And I think they lived nearby. And so they sent somebody out and like, they'd already been there for six hours. So they'd had some time, but they'd sent somebody back to a house and they'd got sort of big parka jackets and a sort of sleeping bag and stuff like that. And they'd covered him over with that. Um, the main issue they had was that they were really reluctant to move him uh, too much because of how much pain he was in. So they kind of stuffed it under him as much as possible. Um, I think some of our role in improving his his warmth and keeping him keeping him nice and, and toasty was actually just um, being willing to inflict a tiny bit of pain to get him into a better position, uh, and just having the confidence to do that as as sort of the professionals um rather than you can totally understand if it's your mate you don't want to you don't want to put them in pain yeah. but sometimes you've got to you've got to you've got to cause a little bit of pain just to position them a bit better um so then we had a we had a blizzard blanket laid out um and then we moved the casualty from where he was onto the blizzard blanket uh something we did with this casualty that we've not done um previously was we actually cut out a bit of blizzard blanket and we put it on the inside of the vacuum splint um to try and insulate his foot a bit better because at this point you know you, you're told to get them trauma naked and you cut off all their clothes and they're already freezing and they've been on the floor for six hours yeah. and they just get colder and colder um the other top tip that i've learned is rather than cutting up the front of the trousers cut up the side and then you can use the flap to cover them back over so that there's still some warmth oh, in there as well the same with jackets rather than cutting up the front yeah, cut up the side it. um we also have like chemical ready heat pads that we put on casualties to keep them nice and warm and again part of that instant commander role is going to be getting the the land rover heated up and ready and as close to the casualty as we can possibly be so that when we get him in there he's got a nice warm environment to get into yeah brilliant and let's talk about the distracting injury because this is this is a pitfall we all fall into obviously there's a the ankles facing at 90 degrees to where it should be so that is clearly the the main pathology 
Um, but, you know, subsequently there was that high fibular fracture that, that, that came out in, in the ED assessment, the kind of cold light of day, if you like. Um, it, it clearly didn't impact on the patient's care. You dealt with the, you know, the, the limb threatening injury that was presented to you. But what are your reflections on that, you know, that, that you know, having something such as an obvious kind of mechanism of injury and, and, a, and a, the, the kind of clinical findings in front of you and how how we can prevent ourselves from perhaps missing any other potentially significant injuries from doing our kind of uh, full primary survey what what are your reflections on that yeah i think that my original reaction to to finding out that he had this uh, high fibular fracture was was oh crap uh, we've missed something here we've we've we should have picked that up um and then with a little bit more thought process about it um there was no significant harm uh we did come we, we were a little bit slow i think in doing our initial primary survey because there was such an obvious injury um and he's screaming in pain and he is really distracting um and so all you want to do is kind of just try and sort that out first because it is so distracting that you almost can't do anything else because he's in so much pain um yeah so we were a little bit a little bit slow on doing the primary survey but i think one of us eventually i don't think it was me <laughs> i think somebody sort of said oh yeah we should we should probably do our primary survey and have we considered c spine and you know um have we listened to his chest has he got any chest pain and, and all of that good stuff as well so we did get down to that and then i think we possibly nickel bit because we established there was no long bone injuries we didn't think there was a pelvic injury um and then lower leg I think possibly just got all sort of lumped into one area. So we we were like, yeah, we know there's an ankle fracture, uh, the femur's fine and the pelvis is fine. So we didn't sort of have a good feel all the way down. Um, I think possibly the other thing is that he was in so much pain that he was probably not really able to differentiate what was hurting at that point. Um, if it was the ankle or the leg or the the sort of the, the upper fibular injury either. Um, so I think being really systematic. And I think the other thing that really helped was addressing analgesia early uh, because it actually just calms the whole situation down a lot. Yeah. He, he was in so much pain. He was screaming. Yeah. And um, once we got him sucking on the Entonox, it A, gives him something to do and B, helps with the pain massively and quickly. So yeah. that then just de-escalates the whole situation. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, if you've not got big C bleeding or, you know, immediately life-threatening um, problem, then I think just taking the time to get that analgesia on board is, like you say, just makes the whole assessment a lot easier. You know, you don't, you can't, you're not going to hear anything with a statscape on his chest anyway if he's screaming out in pain, any, you know. So, yeah, I think that's really good, um, really good reflection. Brilliant. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Fionn, before we move on to the next part of this uh, conversation? Any final um, reflections or, or learning that you've taken from from this brilliant case? I think this was one of my best cases with Mountain Rescue because A, there was some brilliant trauma involved, not for the patient, but this was a great learning experience for the team because it's very unusual for us to actually pull fractures in, in the field. And also like the, the differences between um, attending a call out with a Mountain Rescue team versus being an expedition doctor is very different when you've got a whole team of really highly trained guys and girls um, who are on the same page. This is what we train for. This is what we've got the kit for. 
um and it it when it all works well it's really um effortless and it it usually results in you know great clinical care um and that's as a result of a lot of hard work and training um by volunteers but i think reflecting on that and how that's different to an expedition doctor when you're on your own and you often don't have a team um it's a very different yeah. sort of uh situation yes. uh, and i think that'll probably be reflected by our next case <laughs> absolutely yeah so I mean, it's lo loads of great stuff and absolutely with that that um uh, that that mountain rescue case uh, it, there's so much that went right there and uh, that really speaks to the, all the training that you've done uh, and how that 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 team functions well and it's really great to hear you know, that, that 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 patient received such excellent care so really really good job let's have a look now at your you know, we're shifting from mountain rescue into expedition we're going to look at your worst moment and this was a summit day on the Mashami route of Kilimanjaro. Now you were quite green. This is your first uh, uh, foreign to expedition medic at altitude. And uh, tell us, Fionn, tell us how that went. Yeah, so I was super excited to get my first Kilimanjaro medic job um, going up uh, the Mashami route, as you said. And I think I'll just dive straight in there with the, with the story. So. Um, we had just got to camp four, uh, Barafu camp, and we descended uh, from 900 meters, which is where you sort of start the hike from, to 4,800 meters, which is where camp four is um, in about four days or so. So with some quick maths there, most expedition medics are going to tell you that that's a ridiculous amount of scent in a very short time, <laughs> which is true. Um, so... Uh, we did our sort of evening checks on everybody uh, at base camp, ready to tr for our summit attempt. And we checked everybody's sats, we checked everybody's heart rates, we sort of general check in, is everybody feeling okay? Uh, at this point, I think we'd lost one, uh, one group member due to a uh, dental problem, actually. But apart from that, everybody was feeling okay. So we got up at about midnight or so. We'd had about two hours of sleep um, to start our summit day. Uh, the temperature was about minus 20 or so. It's dark outside. It's uh, pitch black. And all we can see in front of us is, is leading up uh, a hill that we can't see the top of, a very long trail of head torches and a series of switchbacks up the mountain in front of us. Um, so it, it seems pretty endless. Uh, you can't really see the summit. Pretty much all of our team are on uh, acetazolamide at this point. Uh, a lot of them had started out without. And then as they got um, as they got a little bit higher, they decided that they wanted to start the acetazolamide. Um, most of us were having mild symptoms of AMS, as you would expect with that sort of ascent. So we were having headaches. Um, some, some people had vomited, there was some diarrhea, there was some breathlessness, there was the occasional chest tightness. Um, everybody's sats were sitting around the sort of 80, uh, 80 point. So some guys, some guys had sats down to about 72 or so was the lowest, but they felt okay. And they had no signs of any hate or haste. So we're trudging up the mountain in the darkness, staring at our feet, just literally moving our feet about six inches at a time at a super slow pace. It's what the porters call poly poly, um, which is just slowly, slowly. Uh, and mainly you can't move any faster than that because that's all the oxygen will allow. 
we're trying to stay awake and people are literally falling asleep on their feet as they're walking because it's just so monotonous. You're just putting one foot in front of the other um, as you trudge up the mountain. And we're moving just about fast enough to stay warm. Um, we're stopping about once an hour for five minutes or so in order to sip some water, uh, have a little snack. And we know that we've got approximately eight to 10 hours more of this until we get to the summit. So um, safe to say morale is, uh, is, is pretty low and we're all struggling a little bit, including me. And every time we stopped, um, I was being asked to check other members of the group. So-and-so's feeling a bit sick. So-and-so's got a headache. Um, so he's not walking very well or so-and-so's falling asleep all the time. Um, and so it was a little bit relentless in that five minute break. And it often meant that I wasn't getting time to drink and I wasn't getting time to eat. And so it was uh, very much a case of putting everybody else uh, and their well-being and my role as the medic looking after them um, over my own at that point. So this meant that I was getting dehydrated, I was getting fatigued and I hadn't eaten anything. And then my camelback froze uh, and my, uh, my Nalgene froze. And so I didn't have any water, even if I did have time to drink it. Um, and in terms of how I was doing mentally, I was, I've never been so cold ever. Uh, my fingers were, were just incredibly cold. I had all of my layers on, uh, two down jackets and uh, pretty much everything else that I owned. I had a headache, I felt sick, I'd retched a few times, um, I'd taken some on Danzatron. I was on acetazolamide and I'd taken paracetamol and ibuprofen. I felt shortness of breath. I had chest tightness. I felt like if you've ever been to a spin class and they make you sprint and your heart rate's going at approximately 180 and you think you're about to pass out and die. I felt like that constantly for about eight hours. <laughs> so it was super unpleasant. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty relentless. Uh, and anyway, so the, the group starts to split up. Everybody's feeling roughly as bad as each other. Um, it was one slightly faster group, one slightly slower group. Um, and I decided to go with the faster group for a couple of different reasons. And, you know, this this is up for debate whether or not this was the right decision. But um, I thought it was going to be easier to descend than it was to ascend. And so if I was with the faster group, then it was going to be easier to go back down than it was to try and, well, there was absolutely no question that I was not going to be sprinting up this mountain. So um, the faster group was also slightly larger uh, and they were also the people who were pushing themselves. Um, and so I was concerned that they, if they pushed themselves too far, they would... Uh, then sort of you know not not do so well higher up um the slower group were a bit more measured a bit, a bit more steady and both groups had porters with them who had means of communicating with each other so they could tell us whether um somebody was struggling and needed my help everybody had uh, a pill in the pocket uh, which was recommended by one of the previous medics uh which was on danzatron and i made sure everybody had paracetamol and ibuprofen as well so that the idea of that was to try and offload some of the uh, the workload off me um, after, so sort of deciding that I was going to go with the, the faster group, um, 
morale, like I've already mentioned, was extremely low. There was a moment where I felt that it was my role to keep encouraging the team, motivating the team, keeping them going, although I was seriously struggling myself and just wanted to turn around and go back down. And I had that thought and I sort of shouted out to the team, you know, does anyone want to go back down? And uh, everybody sort of mumbled, no, no. And then I sort of shouted, does anyone want to go back down? And then we had a more resounding, no so uh we we carried on plodding up on up this endless hill towards the summit <laughs> and i also had a thought that no matter how miserable or terrible this is it's still not as bad as an a and e night shift <laughs> so um that was something. a comforting thought i was pretty pleased with that yeah so and um pleased to say that you know most of the team did make it to the top there was no major incidents uh, there was no major major illnesses or anything like that um, the slower group did turn around and go back down which, once they got to Stellar Point, which is the sort of um, main checkpoint on the way up to the summit. And once the sun rose and everything got a lot warmer and lighter and we could see where we were going, um, rather than this endless plod, um, everybody started feeling a bit better after that um, and uh, plodded on up to the summit. Yeah, I mean that sounds like a really tough gig, a really particularly tough summit. And it, you were on the on the mountain for twenty hours, I gather your your whole summit bid. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a um, prolonged it's a very, ordeal. Very long day. Yeah, it, this really resonates for me as well, Fionn, because my first ever gig ten years ago as an expedition medic uh, was at Kilimanjaro as well, and um, I had it's in many ways a similar experience. Uh, it took us a long time to do the the summit. Um, and you know, if people were keeling over like flies as well, I think it, it's it's interesting how easy it is for people to underestimate Kilimanjaro. I mean, it's a it's a non technical trekking peak, but it's still the freest, uh, the highest freestanding mountain on earth. And every year, there's still uh, significant medical incidents. Uh, people die uh, summiting it. You know, the numbers of people going up, and also the like you said, the ascent profiles are often very, very unsafe. Uh, back in the day, they used to have a five-day Morangu route, which was just complete suicide. And uh, the, people were it, there's a, the rates of severe AMS, haste, and hate were, were through the roof. Uh, and they've now, I think, they've cut back on that, and we're seeing a lot more eight, nine-day, longer more uh, sensible ascent profiles, but still that Machami route still pretty gnarly, isn't it? And and this, every, every trip I, every medic I speak to who's, who's done this, there's been the, the, the dock for, for a Kilimanjaro trek has, has always had some action. It's a tough gig, isn't it? It's a very tough gig. And I think I was quite naive going into it and didn't really ask too many questions about the uh, the route or the ascent profile and after coming back and uh, there's another medic who was on the trip with me uh, who who was with another group and we sort of came back down after the summit night and it was sort of 20 hours of trekking and his group was a lot slower than mine as well so he was actually out there for a lot longer and he just kind of limped into camp a broken a broken medic and sort of just said to me that was awful and we just looked at each other and we said that was terrible <laughs> let's not do that again and uh, we've been in touch since yeah. and we've both reflected on the whole experience and i think spoken to other medics who've done Kelly as well and everybody says the same thing everybody says that this is an underestimated extreme ascent profile where people get sick 
uh, and it's a predictable thing because you're ascending so quickly. Um, Mm. And it's also a mountain where it's not technical, which means that you get a lot of uh, trekkers who are not necessarily that experienced um, and it may be their mountain altitude. So um, that sort of plays into it as well. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of controversy to be had about the actual routes. And of course, um, the, the actual companies have got a vested interest in getting as many people up and down the mountain as possible. Yeah. And so they want to do it as quickly as possible. And they yeah. say, yep, the Machami route is fine. You know, it's a, it's a well-established route. And that's, that's the one that we always do. And there will always be medics who are out there looking for their first expedition job who are happy to say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go on the Machami route. Um, yes. And then it's only Become a, cannon a little bit later yes. on, maybe they realize <laughs> this is not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yes i mean if you want to get some medical hands-on wilderness medicine experience it's a great way to go about it but yeah it, it's it's certainly not not the easiest gig out there um that one th- aspect of this which i find fascinating which you you touched on there fion was this there's obviously com- a vested commercial interest to uh get as many people to the top as possible and also the individuals that do this trip they're often fundraising for charities that are very meaningful to them. And they've often got lots of interesting journeys. Uh, Some of them are completely sedentary people, uh, barely done anything. And they've essentially done couch, not couch to 5K, but couch to Kilimanjaro, which is a remarkable feat. I can't get me wrong. And they're they're very driven people. Um, And and as medics, we're supporting that. We are there to provide a, a margin of safety to enable that to happen and all that fundraising for those brilliant charities and obviously the, the companies benefit from that but then there's always a part of me as well when I'm on the mountain with these people where I, I kind of had this and this sounds very unkind but I don't know if you have the same thoughts but I feel you shouldn't belong here and to use a quote from uh, Lawrence Gonzalez who wrote Deep Survival he said to enter the wilderness to challenge the forces of nature we must be worthy and worthiness doesn't come from a weekend survival school, the Eagle Scouts or even a few years in the military. And I felt that there, that worthiness wasn't there with many of the participants. As much of a you know, the, the altruistic reasons for doing that challenge, I, I kind of felt, you know, we're in this weird commercial situation whereby, you know, you're here in this extreme environment and you're not physically capable of doing this and all the forces are pushing you to the top but is is this is this the right thing to be doing is it it just part of it felt a bit wrong to me did you get that same sense as well and how did you manage to reconcile that in your own head yeah i think it's really interesting to hear you say that because i um the thought crossed my mind i think i had a very i had a great group um who who were raising money for a charity and they're all sort of um young adults uh fairly fit however minimal uh minimal mountain experience amongst them and i think there was a lot lot of other groups on the mountain who were very different in that they were um they were they were paying for a holiday to climb kilimanjaro and or they they were very much different nationalities of different expectations as well. So I'm sure people might know what I mean when I say that um, some people are, are paying people to get them to the top. And that is the expectation and they won't take no for an answer. And there were some groups there like that. And there's also, you know, you pay a lot of money for a service and 
the the porters and the the tents and the cooking and the the whole sort of carrying your bag up the mountain and some people this is an absolute mm. privilege and they're not expecting this and for some people this is absolutely what they paid for and the food's not good enough and the camp isn't very comfortable and their tent's yes. not big enough and you know and i think a lot of the reason why we do this is is not for any of those it's it's to be in these incredible places um away from people like that <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. And 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 with like-minded people who are appreciating the nature, the views, the challenge, the experience, the, mm. the the privilege of being in such an unusual um, yes. and, and challenging environment, um, and I think it's really hard when everybody else's values and reasons for being there don't gel with your own. Yeah, I, I, that, that that really also resonates with my experience. I think that there's two different types of participants on these trips, some who really do relish the challenge and yet they haven't done the training. They're not really fit enough. They've never been to altitude. But part of you is like, well, you know, you're having a go. <laughs> we'll, we'll, give, we'll give you a good go. But there's there's some people that just go for the holiday. They really want a kind of hotel kind of experience. They're not really mucking in with the group. They're not really team players. They're really just very much focused on their own kind of needs, their own internal world. And I think they're the, 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 the minority that are the most difficult to deal with as, as the trip medic. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, just thinking about I think um, where that comes into um, yeah. I was I, obviously really I was really lucky with my own group that they were a very undemanding and grateful yeah. and, and group to be there and they'd raise a lot of money in order to be there and so they'd already done an incredible amount but um I th my my colleague I mentioned he was with a group who were uh they, they were also raising money for the same charity however their mm. their employer um had paid all of the money for them uh for the into the charity and so they'd actually invested very little of their time and effort in actually uh, raising money for the charity so they were a little bit more demanding a little bit more privileged and a little bit more uh they, they were older and uh, originally the other medic thought that, that was going to be a good thing because they would be more self-sufficient and more mature and they were going to look after themselves better and that turned out to be the complete opposite they were heavily reliant on him and and there was big demands on his time uh, and his expertise all of the yeah, way yeah. uh which was 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 really hard for him and, and i've had moments like it was fortunate when i did killy it turns out i'm a fast acclimatizer which is which is lucky so i was i was i felt okay in myself and and when i did the inca trail similarly but then i did every space camp and uh for some reason for the first time the altitude absolutely hit me like a freight train when i got up to gorak shep and the final uh, part of that and that was also when the group were most needy when they they you know, we got into camp and they just needed all kinds of stuff doing <laughs> and i just felt like shit. and it's just when you're not on point when, you, when you're really feeling the, the the strain of it all and everyone's turning to you that is really difficult as a medic isn't it uh when you're you know you're, you're just holding on to things yourself and you've got to have that extra reserve to then take on the the needs of other people that that is a really dark place to be in isn't it? i've experienced that as well yeah yeah absolutely i think um my approach to this which i sort of very much developed along the way along kilimanjaro was uh being really honest with my team um and I expected that honesty back in return, uh, but it was like, guys, like, I'm really not feeling good. Um, you know, I've, I've got a headache. <laughs> I, I didn't sleep. Uh, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> uh, 
um, and just just sharing that. And actually, I think um, what what that meant was that then my team could see that I was also feeling shit, and I was getting on with it, and I was and I was doing it, and I was mucking in, and I was still doing my part. Um, and that then therefore creates the expectation that they will as well. Um, but it also creates an environment where they feel they can share how how they're feeling as well. Um, and so you don't get that. You don't get so much of the people concealing symptoms. No, I feel fine. No, I'm OK. I'll just carry on. Um, or, or no, I don't need any paracetamol right now. I'm all right. Uh, you don't get that kind of macho um, in, kind of covering up environment. And if that comes from the medic, you, you are a leader amongst the team, uh, whether it's in name or not. Uh, and if you, if it comes from the medic and you say, guys, like, I'm really not feeling it, you know, yeah, 100%, I'm going to have a look at your feet and I'm going to sort out your headache and I'm going to have a look at that. But just to let you know, you know, I'm not 100%. Um, and then it, it does, I think, help improve the team dynamic overall as well. I think my own personal struggle was at what point do you become too unwell to be the medic? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really good, good question that. Uh, but one thing I really liked that you did there, Fionn, was you modelled vulnerability to the rest of the team and you made it OK to, to show weakness. And I think there's a great pressure on us as medics. To, I mean, we always have this hero complex and we always want to be the strong rock at the, the, the team that, that anyone can turn to and we'll sort them out. and We'll just be there. Um, but we're still human beings and we're still uh, we still succumb to the same uh, issues with altitude. And I think um, you, know, you had the, the humility to do that. And that, that's a really powerful thing to, to show to that group. Um, and also, like you say, it, it encourages that behavior in them that they can then come to you and, and they're not just gonna conceal things that they're gonna, it's gonna build trust um, and, and, and open up the, the, the kind of channels of communication between you. So that, that's brilliant. But yeah, to, to come back to your last point there about at what point as the medic, what, what point do you throw in the towel yourself? Because there, there is a time if you're just ill, you know, if you've got severe AMS, you shouldn't be ascending. You know, what point do you say, look, I've, I've got to go down, you know, and there might not be anyone there to tell you to do that. That has to be a kind of, you have to have the self-awareness to know when to tap out and and take yourself down uh, and leave that the, the you know the, the, the group behind without a medic and that's that feels like a real dereliction of duty doesn't it? it feels like you've really failed everyone if you do that what was going through your head when you were really suffering and you're still climbing up to the summit uh, you know how did you make sense of that and, and and how did you come to the decision that you'd continue and push on to the top i think um me me and the other medic uh, who were with the same group, but we weren't sort of on the, on the mountain at the same points, if you get what I mean. So we weren't right next to each other. But we'd had a chat about this at base camp. And we'd said um, we were worried that we would lose insight into when we're actually too unwell to continue. So in the sort of situation where you've developed haste uh, or something like that, and you, you really can't make a decision on whether or not you're okay to go on obviously we're hoping it never got to that point but um that was something we were worried about and we discussed with each other um i didn't have a clear cut off in my head but i suppose when i what i felt was was mild ams um although it feels mild to moderate potentially although it feels very unpleasant i knew that none of my symptoms were of hape or haze um so i was happy that that was 
a manageable thing. I think if I potentially hadn't been sleeping or hadn't been eating or had been in a worse physical state than I was, um, that might have been a different story. Uh, but at the time that I was plodding up the mountain, I was reassured that everybody else felt as bad as I did. <laughs> so um, yes. that, 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 was, that was reassuring in a way. Um, yeah. But that I was, I was capable of carrying on uh, and that I was safe to carry on. Um, I think yeah. what was going through my head just as you were phrasing that question as well was that we had uh, a medic at uh, Moshi uh, who was on the end of the phone. So if we were not sure about a decision, uh, we could call them up and ask for advice from somebody who was not hypoxic at 5,000 meters. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. um that was a really nice safety net to have and even uh even before our summit push uh again like me and the other medic would have a little powwow at the end of the day and say like look mate how are you feeling you okay um what sort of things are you coming across in your group what are you doing for that oh you're doing that okay that's interesting maybe i'll do that for my group so we were sort of supporting each other along the way which was a really yeah. really uh really useful thing for us i think um so knowing that we we had a, another medic on the mountain who may be able to take over if we can't and be a medic at base camp who can make sensible decisions if we can't um, and is on the end of the phone for advice was was really important for us. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, some of the best mentors I've had have been the the trip leaders, actually, the non-medics on, on these trips that, you know, when we really gelled, it's really helped them. They've been able to share some of their challenges with managing aspects of, of the group. And I've been able to reflect, you know, bounce off some of my kind of medical concerns. And, and I think having just a, a trusted confidant on, on those trips that you can just bounce some ideas off really helps, I think, to keep you level and grounded and, and you know, make sensible decisions rather than all just swimming around in your own head. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Having some yeah, another ideas aspect of this, invaluable. which I just, oh, massively, massively. Another aspect which is really challenging, and this has happened every time I've done uh, summits like this, is the group with, with, with the kind of charity checking sector, you have a mixed mixture of ability yeah, group always spreads uh, into this long drawn out kind of train rather than being this tight pack you know that kind of just goes up and down together it, it, there's always the stragglers at the back and then the, the kind of keen beans at the front and as the medic i mean historically in the companies i've worked for i've always been at the back that's where they kind of want you as the back uh, but most of the dramas all happen further up front and it, and uh, at different points along that line and it's made it really difficult everyone being so spread out and do you know what i wonder really like which i wish i'd done actually is the pill in the pocket giving everyone some on dancetron and paracetamol so they can kind of self-medicate i i didn't even have any buckle uh antiemetics at all that i wish i did because i only only had im stematil so i was having to get a needle and syringe out every time i needed to give someone an anti an antiemetic who couldn't tolerate an oral route uh, and that was a major faff and used up a lot of my time when they could have just done that themselves with with a you know a bit of buckle and danzatron um, or plocoperazine. That's another great option. So I like the way you've kind of prepared for that. But even with those measures, the pill in the pocket approach, you still feel yourself spread quite thinly along that line. How, how did you uh, how did you find that that aspect of the challenge? Yeah, um, I, I think I spoke about, I was deciding whether or not I was going to go with the faster group or the slower group. Um, yeah. I think at this point, I had spent four days with these guys and I was getting to know them quite well. And I'd spent most of those four days at the back 
um, trying to establish who was the fitter ones, who were the ones to watch, who were the ones that were struggling. And um, I think just just chatting to people as well was really important and just establishing people's mindset and their motivation and and are you struggling because you're physically struggling or are you struggling because you're mentally uh, struggling? Um, and I had quite a lot of chats with the team leader actually as well, the expedition leader who uh, was a, probably a little bit more cautious than I am in a way because he was sort of, oh, so-and-so is really slow. They're really struggling. You know, I don't know if they're going to make it. And I said, they're absolutely slow they're a steady plodder they're going to keep going um and they they are not struggling physically from a medical perspective they are absolutely fine um this is in their head uh this is this is them trying to struggle through um a, a really big challenge um so in terms of the spreading thinly knowing your team knowing your team members knowing what they're likely to be struggling with um and who is who is your biggest risks goes along with that so i was more concerned about the people who were gonna keep quiet keep plodding and uh just try and pace it to the top uh the, the slightly faster people than i was about um the slower group who were actually the steady plodders who were going to turn around if it got too much and were sensible about that um so i was less concerned about them um, the pill in the pocket was a, was a really good idea. It was from the medic before me it, and it probably saved me a lot of time and effort. I cannot imagine having to give that many IM injections to people. Um, it would have been super yeah. unpleasant. Every time you took your gloves off, your hands get freezing. Yeah. It would oh, have been yeah, really yeah. difficult. It didn't work. I can, I can, um, I can so testify. So yeah, that was, that was a really good thing. I briefed, I briefed <laughs> them quite thoroughly about what yeah. I wanted them to do. So I was like, if you feel sick, you take this tablet. If you get a headache, you take paracetamol. And if you mm. still have a headache after an hour, then you take ibuprofen. And then you come to me mm. uh, because yeah. I want to know if you're taking all those things and it's not working, I want to know about it. But I was hopefully yeah. trying yeah. to avoid everybody coming to me for everything and getting overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the real value of that, that that medical brief before the the expedition is 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 being able to clearly lay out uh, will promote self-care but where the, the limit of that is reached then you do need to kind of be involved um that's a really important thing to do um uh it's almost like safety of, getting you know uh, when you send somebody home yeah so um one thing we we, uh, we were told when we did ours that the your water does freeze it was minus 20 with wind chill on our summit night as well and one thing we found i don't know if this is helpful we uh we boiled water before we left we actually left at 11 11 p.m not midnight because we had a particularly slow group so we we wanted to give ourselves a head start uh literally everyone overtook us as we were going up uh towards the summit but we we uh boiled water and put them in kind of metal flasks and stuffed those into our jacket so it was kind of gave you heat as you were going up and nothing froze and then obviously you always had water and you always had a, that extra source of warmth so that really worked well for us but I've, I've seen a lot of people whose camelback tubing froze and uh, yeah no water up there is just just bad times and you get dehydrated and it, it really it really bites you doesn't it yeah absolutely um i think people mentioned like insulated camelback uh pipes and things like that uh but i think yeah. they still freeze uh yeah having a warm water to start with and inside your jacket that sounds pretty dreamy 
Um, okay, great. Well, Fionn, I think we've uh, there's, there's some brilliant cases there. Thanks. So we've had your your uh, worst, ca- your sorry, your best case uh, mountain rescue with, with reducing the ankle uh, on the mountain and 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 successfully casivacking uh, that patient, uh, getting them all the way to hospital, and then your worst moment. Being your being your first foray as an expedition doctor on Mount Kilimanjaro and just feeling like shit at altitude and um, having to kind of push through that, get people up up and back from the summit. Uh, but you got through it, and and you know the loads of learning has has come out of both of those events. So thank you, thanks for being so candid and and sharing all of the the the, the things that went well and didn't go so well. I think it's such an important process that we all need to go through after being involved in in expedition wilderness medicine so that we can keep learning and improving and, and delivering the best care we can for the patients yeah thank you so much for uh, it's been a really interesting conversation some things that i've not thought about before as well so yeah it's always a a pleasure to reflect on experiences with a different point of view so thank you for your really interesting questions will Thanks, Fionn. And we'll look forward to listening to your podcast episodes. Uh, they'll be out very soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. And, I, and now I've picked up all the top tips from you. I'm going to be using them in my future episodes. Excellent. OK, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.